0: Africa, rise and shine. Africa, zora. Africa, amka na unai.
1: Good morning and welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the nineteen m band to far west Africa. And I am Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tami Solohoku and Tami Kouza. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at this hour, UNICEF expresses concern over violence against children in Central African Republic and second round of Syrian peace talks end in deadlock. In economics talks to resolve a wage strike in South African platinum mines continues and in sports news, Nigeria's Kano Pillars crash out of the CAF Champions League. But first, the news with Anne Moussa.
2: Good morning. The second round of the Syrian peace talks has ended without making progress. United Nations and Arab League Special Envoy for Syria, Lakhdar Brahimi, has expressed disappointment at the failure by the government and the opposition to find a common ground on which to start the negotiations. Speaking in Geneva at the weekend, Brahimi apologized to the Syrian people for the lack of progress on the peace talks and appeals to the government and the opposition to deeply reflect on whether they want the peace process to take place
3: or not. I'm very, very sorry and I apologize to the Syrian people that uh, their hopes, which were very, very high, that something will happen here, I think that the little that has been achieved in Homs gave them even more hope that uh, maybe this is the beginning of the coming out of this horrible crisis they are in. I apologize to them that uh, on these two rounds we haven't helped, helped them very much. I very, very much hope that the two sides will reflect and uh, think a little bit better and come back ready to engage seriously on how to implement the Geneva communique
2: Brahimi says the two sides have agreed on the agenda for the third round to to include ending violence and terrorism, establishment of the transitional governing body, national institutions and national reconciliation. However, both sides remain divided on how to proceed.
3: We suggested that the first day will be set for a discussion on ending violence and combating terrorism. And the second day would be reserved to a discussion on the TGB, it being extremely clear that one day will not be enough to finish the discussion on violence and terrorism, and one day will not be enough on discussing the TGB.
2: Suspected members of the militant group Boko Haram have killed at least almost 100 people, including women and children, in an attack on a village in northeast Nigeria. The attack took place in the village of Izgie in Bonos yesterday. Witnesses say the militants armed with explosives and guns surrounded the village and sprayed it with bullets. The gunmen also bur- burned down dozens of houses. Bono State Police Commissioner Lawal Tanko has confirmed the attack but says details are yet to be verified. U.S. President Barack Obama has warned Ugandan President Yoweri Museveni that enacting an anti-gay law would complicate U.S. relations with Uganda. Obama says it would be a step backward for all Ugandans. Obama issued a statement denouncing Museveni's plans to sign a law that would impose harsh sentences for those convicted of homosexual acts. The United States is one of the largest donors of foreign aid to Uganda, sending more then $400 million a year in recent years. The bill was first introduced in 2009 and initially proposed a death sentence for homosexual acts but was amended to prescribe jail terms including life in jail for what it calls aggravated homosexuality. South Africa's President Jacob Zuma has acknowledged that some people have used his name for political mileage and to advance their own business interests. Some sections of the media have accused Zuma of allowing the Gupta family to land an aircraft full of wedding guests at the Vatarklouf military airbase in the capital Pretoria last year. Zuma says the practice of name dropping goes back to the first democratic government led by the late President Nelson Mandela.
4: Mandela left. Tabo came in. You don't know how much his name was abused. When it came to me, fortunately, I was aware of it. Because we talked about it then, at Mandela's time, as well as as Mbegi's time. People are not going to stop. Imagine if then the tenders are everywhere. People are taking decisions everywhere. So easy to mess up people's names who know nothing about it, as it has been happening. Once you restrict it, you centralize it. No one is going to be saying number one because those people don't take decisions. So you'll even limit that kind of possibility of people abusing other people's names.
2: And that's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African Time.
0: Africa, rise and shine. Africa, zora. Africa, Amuka na unai.
1: Thank you, Anne. It's 8.06 Central African time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. If you have any questions or comments about our show, you're welcome to send us an email to info at send us an SMS to 2782 or get a hold of us at our Twitter handle, which is at channelafrica1. A second round of peace talks in Geneva to end the ongoing crisis in Syria has ended in deadlock after the warring parties failed to agree on a way forward. The three-year conflict in Syria has killed more than 100,000 people and forced millions of others to flee their homes. Representatives of the Syrian government and the opposition have been in Geneva under the mediation of the UN and Arab League envoy Lakhda Brahimi. Derek Mbata reports.
5: The representatives of the government and the opposition who spoke to the press on Friday presented differing views of why the talks have not made progress. The spokesperson for the Syrian opposition delegation, Louie Safi, said on Wednesday his delegation submitted a proposal on a political solution and to what he called transition to democracy.
6: This proposal is on the table now. The regime has not submitted any other proposal about transition to democratic practice away from dictatorship, away from bloodshed, away from imposition of the people in power on the population. We hope to receive positive response. We haven't received anything yet. Probably we are going to pause for a while to see whether the regime is going to engage again in a political solution.
5: Syrian Deputy Foreign Minister Faisal Maktad said his delegation came to Geneva to implement a declared Syrian position on the resolution of the crisis. He said his delegation was willing to discuss the issue of the transitional governing body once an agreement had been reached on fighting terrorism in Syria. I think those who do not give a chance for discussion and agreement on combating terrorism are definitely not part of the Syrian people and contradict with the wishes and aspirations of the Syrian people. And we want to continue our discussions until we reach an agreement on this point, because this is crucial for the Syrian people. And those who claim to represent Syrians should be committed to stopping bloodshedding in Syria. The UN Arab League envoy for Syria, Lakhdar Brahimi, continues his efforts to get the two sides to move towards a common position on how to proceed with the resolution of the Syrian crisis. The Geneva communique, which, among other things, calls for a transitional government and an end to violence in Syria, has been recognized as the basis for the resolution of the crisis. Mr. Prahim was asked... If a lack of progress in implementing the communique means the Geneva 2 talks must be written off as a failure.
3: It's a measure of the difficulty of the situation and its complication that a document that was produced on the 30th of June 2012, we have just started discussing how we may perhaps implement it. So it is a very, very complicated subject. Failure is always staring at us in the face.
5: Mr. Prahimi said the United Nations will certainly not leave one stone unturned if there is a possibility to move forward. If there isn't, he added, the UN will say so. Derek Mbata, United Nations.
1: The United Nations Children's Fund has raised concerns about the cruelty and impunity with which children are being killed and mutilated in the Central African Republic. According to the UN Children's Agency, recent weeks have witnessed unprecedented levels of violence against children in sectarian and retaliatory attacks by anti-Balaka militia and ex seleka combatants, acts that constitute grave violations against children. At least 133 children have been killed and maimed, some of them in horrific ways in two months of escalating ethno-religious violence. For more on this, Khomutso Mopulane spoke to Laurent Duvier, United Nations Children's Fund spokesperson in Senegal.
7: UNICEF is extremely concerned because we see in Central African Republic unprecedented levels of violence against children, in sectarian and retaliation acts committed by both anti-Balaka militia and ex-Selica combatants. Such acts constitute grave violations against children, and we are horrified by the cruelty and the impunity with which children are being killed and mutilated in Central African Republic. So far, UNICEF has collected evidences about 133 cases of children who were killed and maimed, some of them in very horrific ways, for the past two months amid escalating ethno-religious violence. It is is absolutely unacceptable. And we are just talking about the verified cases. It might just be the tip of the icebergs. How many cases have not been reported? How many cases may not be investigated? Absolutely crucial today that we understand that violence is committed by all groups. Today's perpetrators can turn into tomorrow's victims, and today's victims can turn into tomorrow's perpetrators. We have evidence today that shows that more and more children are being targeted because of their religion or because of the community they belong to. It is absolutely unacceptable, and impunity must end now
2: in light of this have unicef perhaps increased or scaled up on the humanitarian operations or its presence in the central african republic
7: unicef has been scaling up its humanitarian operation for the past few months we've been in central african republic since the beginning of the crisis and all teams now see that there is escalating violence we have never seen this before It's for the first time we see six-year-old children who are being targeted and mutilated because of their religion and because of the community they belong to. Humanitarian organizations need to scale up and need to provide impartial humanitarian assistance to reach children most at risk. UNICEF is there, there are many other humanitarian actors who have beefed up their operations. More needs to be done. But the most important part is that security is needed. Troops and militia in the country must be disarmed immediately. And security must be restored by national forces, African Union forces, and French troops, so that the family that has been displaced can feel safe enough to return home.
2: And apart from calling on governments to ensure the safety of children in the Central African Republic, UNICEF has also called for the investigations and the prosecutions as well as the punishment of the grave violations against children. Is this falling on deaf ears or is something being done regarding your appeal?
7: It is one of our major concerns that those attacks against children that are taking place not only in Bangui but also in other parts of the country, are often not denounced. It is important that all the components of Central African society denounce systematically those attacks against children. Civil society, media, youth organizations have a role to play. It is not acceptable. And those violations against children must, of course, be investigated, prosecuted, and punished. And here, the national authorities have a, an important role to play.
1: That was Laurent Duvier, UN Children's Fund spokesperson in Dakar, Senegal, on the line, talking to Komoto Mopulane. It's a rare occurrence to see a dog on a leaf in South Sudan, even rare, a dog with a job. But that is set to change, at least at the United Nations mission in the country UNMIS. Eight dogs have been trained to sniff out any explosives, weapons or contraband being brought into the UNMIS camps. The dogs with jobs provide protection for the staff working and the more than 27,000 displaced people seeking shelter at the Unmis base at Tomping in Juba. David Lucan went along to see the dogs perform in one of their final training sessions before their first day in the office. <laughs>
6: What you're hearing is the sound of a sniper dog drinking water after a busy training session here inside Unmissus scam at Tongping. We're just a few metres away from an IDP camp which is home to more than 20,000 people and these dogs are going to play a role in keeping them safe. Robert Thompson is the chief of operations for UN Mine Action Services. He says these working dogs are being trained to snip for very specific things.
8: We have a, a non-explosive source That is exactly the same smell of what they're looking for from guns to weapons to to uh, hand grenades to pure explosives this is planted um by the handlers or by the supervisors so the handlers don't know where the, the the explosive trace is and we just constantly test the dogs obviously he's got to find it to pass the test the un has contracted eight dogs for this job
6: they've been brought all the way from afghanistan to juba Some may also be flown to Bentu, Bor, or Malakal. Sniffer dogs are used around the world to use their extremely strong sense of smell to find hidden drugs or explosives. They are even sometimes used to help police track missing people. These dogs, of course, along their handlers, will be positioned at UN gates to sniff every vehicle entering the compound. They'll be looking for illegal materials, such as explosives or weapons, that some people might want to smuggle into the camp. Robert Thompson, again.
8: At the moment, it's particularly for the UN bases. Um, Again, it's to enhance our security, to stop people smuggling in contraband into the IDP camps. They can, and we have got the capability to expand, so if they're needed in the airports and other places, we can expand into these areas. They're specially trained for explosives, weapons, and other items of explosive nature. They've just come from Afghanistan, where they were used in the same sort of role, but also used for detecting drugs, and other contraband. there things been smuggled to UN camp? I don't know myself if the things been smuggled into the UN camp, but better safe than sorry to stop it before it happens. So that's the way security works. Better to be secure than, than let something happen, then try to pick up from it. Well, the, the first contract's up to the end of June, and obviously we'll have to uh, reassess how successful or how, how they worked out. So come the end of June, we re- we'll reassess their need, and we'll reassess the security situation see how it goes from there. They've been here for a week already, what we call clematisation, um, so that training finishes on Friday, St Valentine's Day, then they'll become operational on the Saturday.
1: That report by David Lucan. It's 18 minutes after 8 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. If you have any questions or comments about our show, you're welcome to send us an email to info.channelafrica.org or send us an SMS to 2782 You can also get a hold of us at our Twitter handle, which is at channelafrica1.
0: Africa Rise and Shine Africa Zohra Africa Amuka Na Unai
1: Experts from countries in the eastern African region are gathering in Kinshasa, the capital of the Democratic Republic of Congo, to discuss the role of investment to boost their economies. The Intergovernmental Committee of Experts is part of the United Nations Economic Commission for Africa, ECA's Office for Eastern Africa. It meets annually to review progress in the economic development of the 14 countries of the sub-region and how to tackle the challenges they face. To find out more about this, this more about this this year's meeting, UN Radio's Derek Mbata spoke with Antonio Pedro, the director of the ECA office for Eastern Africa on the line from Kigali, the capital of Rwanda.
9: The Intergovernmental Committee of Experts in Kinshasa this year is going to discuss on the topic of national champion foreign direct investment and structural transformation in Eastern Africa. Essentially, we'll be interrogating the extent to which foreign direct investment to the region has contributed to promote structural transformation to our
5: economy. Tell me about the foreign direct investment. How much of it does the region have?
9: The region has attracted a lot of major investment, mostly uh, to the extractive industry. As you know, for example, our host country, the Democratic Republic of Congo, is very rich in resources. So it leaves in terms of volumes of investment to the sector. We are talking of more than $3 billion in 2012. In addition that, as you know, there are also very important natural gas findings in Tanzania and oil and gas in Kenya. So the extractive industry, attracts fact, very important volumes of investment. We should also not forget, mm. countries like Ethiopia are equally attracting investment for especially manufacturing. We have Chinese companies that are building major factories in the leather sector.
5: And what's your assessment of the manufacturing sector in the East Africa region?
9: In the years of the structural adjustment period, the 90s and so on, we have deindustrialization on the continent. That has affected considerably in terms of industrial networks that are associated with the manufacturing have collapsed. And now, because of certain important fundamentals, there is a considerable effort towards the rebirth of the industrial sector in Africa.
5: What are some of the challenges that the region is facing?
9: Well, there are several challenges. One of the most important ones, of course, has to do with the quality of our infrastructure. We don't have adequate modern infrastructure. Our roads, rail lines, airports, ports, are not competitive yet. And because of that, they impact negatively on the competitiveness of our industry. So this is an area in which government has to lead. They have to find solutions to address the infrastructure problems in Africa. Some of them, of course, could be anchored on public-private partnerships. Some could be based on channeling better domestic resources. I mean, the discourse of domestic resource mobilization. Uh, I mean, we've had discussions around the role of the diaspora. Utilizing some of the resources from the diaspora to, to fund infrastructure is one way of looking at it, but that is a, one of the priorities. Yes. The other, of course, has to do with the enabling environment. government needs to look at our domestic private sector, understand better what are their needs in terms of the legal and regulatory framework and act accordingly. So essentially, we are looking at having legal and regulatory frameworks which are not only directed at making our countries attractive to foreign direct investment, but are also equally conscious of the needs and requirements of the domestic capital. This is an important agenda. The third area of the intervention, of course, to do with the private sector itself. I mean, it needs to be strengthened. So, capacitating our domestic private sector is an important agenda in our conversation in Kinshasa.
5: I wanted to find out uh, about uh, the domestic uh, private sector. How is it right now in the region? Is it growing? Well, um, we have very encouraging
9: signs that, After being dormant for many years, now we are starting to see some lead African companies emerging. We have banks in West Africa that are moving beyond their territory and expanding to the rest of the continent. We have leading business people across the continent that are becoming a force to reckon with. But these numbers alone are not sufficient, having some pockets of success. We need the capitalism revolution. Many more capitalists cross the continent.
1: That was Antonio Pedro, the Director of the UN Economic Commission for Africa Office for Eastern Africa, on the line from Kigali, talking to Derek Mbata. Pointing to startling statistics on lung cancer risks, es- experts on child health and other complications in Canada are ramping up calls for families nationwide to test their homes for radon gas contamination. Indoor exposure to radon gas is said to be the world's second cause of lung cancer. It comes from uranium in the ground and c- can enter homes through cracks and gaps in the foundation and build up to harmful levels in indoor air. For more on this, Jane Matabula spoke to Erica Phipps, Executive Director of the Canadian Partnership for Children's Health and Environment.
10: Radon is a radioactive gas that comes from the breakdown of uranium in rocks and soil. It's normally present at low levels in the air all around us. It becomes a health concern, though, when it builds up to harmful levels in indoor air. Long-term exposure to radon is actually the world's second leading cause of lung cancer after smoking.
11: And what is the acceptable level of radon gas in the A?
10: The World Health Organization has established a guideline. It's a range between 100 to 300 becquerels per cubic meter of air inside a home or building. A becquerel is a measure of the radioactive decay. Here in Canada, our guideline is 200, but the World Health Organization considers anywhere from the ideal of 100 to 300 as an acceptable level of radon in the indoor environment.
11: And Erika, I understand that the level of radon gas in the air varies from home to home, where you find that some homes have high levels of concentration, why is it so?
10: The amount of radon in your home will vary for a number of reasons. One is geography, the amount of uranium in the soil rock and the type of soil and rock upon which your home is built will make a difference for the amount of radon available. The other factors have to do with the type of housing. If you have a lot of cracks or gaps in the foundation or slab that that your house is built on, that allows an opportunity for this radon gas to seep into your home through those passageways. There are other factors as well, such as the amount of ventilation in a home. So here in Canada, we mentioned earlier the guideline for acceptable levels of radon. Here in Canada, we're finding that one in 15 Canadian homes on average have too much radon in the indoor air. And in some regions of the country, it's up to one in five houses is estimated to have an unacceptable level of radon. So as you can see, it can vary dramatically from one region to another, and even from one house to the neighboring house, which is why we're encouraging all families and all people to have their homes tested.
11: Now, is everyone exposed to radon gas at risk of developing lung cancer, or does it have to do with the level of which one is exposed to?
10: We're all exposed to radon every day. It's a naturally occurring substance that's in the air around us. The problem with radon occurs only when it builds up to a harmful level indoors. So if you're living in a home over a long period of time that has an elevated amount of radon, too much radon, your risk of lung cancer, at least according to the statistics here from health authorities in Canada, is 1 in 20 and interestingly and quite alarmingly the radon gas interacts with exposure to smoking so if you're exposed to high radon and you're also exposed to tobacco smoke your lifetime risk of getting lung cancer is 1 in 3.
11: Let's talk about the preventive measure. What do people need to do to avoid health risks associated with this type of gas?
10: The most important thing to do is to find out if your home has a safe level of radon or whether it's too high, and if the level is too high, action needs to be taken to bring that level down, which can range from sealing up cracks in your foundation, improving the ventilation, or in many cases, at least in Canada, what we're finding is that some homes will have to have a system put in that will insert a pipe into the foundation or the slab and provide a pathway for that radon to escape out through the roof or the sidewall. wall. In Canada- Canada, we're launching a national awareness campaign to encourage all families to test their homes for radon for their children's sake. At home here in Canada, you can go to a hardware store or a building supply store and buy a radon test kit, a do-it-yourself test kit. It's very simple. You just put the test device on a shelf or um, a bookcase in the lowest level of your home that's occupied, and you leave it there for three months or longer. You mail it into the laboratory, and they'll let you know if your results, if your level is acceptable or not, and that's when you know or not you need to take action. And again, it's important to note that it's the long-term exposure that we're concerned about. Exposure for a year or two over a lifetime to a high level of radon is not what we're talking about. We're talking about multiple years, decades of exposure to elevated radon. So if you do find that your home has a high level of radon, you know, you need to get it remediated, but you can take some time to figure out how to get that done.
11: Finally, Erica, it is said that radon gas is the world's second cause of lung cancer. Now, is there enough public awareness about the dangers of this type of gas and its association with lung cancer?
10: No, we're finding here in Canada and I believe it would be similar worldwide there really is very low levels of public awareness about radon. People are very familiar with cigarette smoking being a cause of lung cancer but most people that I talk to and even even professionals in the field are finding that people generally have not heard of radon or if they have heard about it, they don't know what it is and they more importantly don't know what to do to make sure their home is safe for their families. So we're trying to improve that situation by getting the word out to families, explaining what radon is, and helping them to understand how they need to find out the radon level in their home. I think most people are surprised when they learn that radon is the second leading cause of lung cancer. Here in Canada, the statistics are that radon is the cause of 16% of lung cancer deaths.
1: That was Erica Phipps, executive director of the Canadian Partnership for Children's Health and Environment, on the line from Toronto, in Canada, talking to Jane Matebula and Musa. Up next with the headlines. Good
2: morning, 11 men, including leaders of the Christian anti-Balaka militia and the Central African Republic, have been arrested and detained in the capital's main prison. Suspected members of the militant group Boko Haram have killed almost 100 people, including women and children, in an attack on a village in northeastern Nigeria. And U.S. President Barack Obama has warned Ugandan President Yoweri Saveni that enacting an anti-gay law would complicate U.S. relations with Uganda. Those are the stories making headlines.
1: Thank you, Anne. The low level of contraceptive use among women in Burkina Faso is fueling the high rate of unwanted pregnancies, especially in this West African nation's rural areas. This is documented in a new report titled Unintended Pregnancy and Abortion in Burkina Faso Causes and Consequences. The report was put together by researchers at the University of Ouagadougou and the U.S. based nonprofit organization, the Gut Institute. To find out more, in this report elizabeth mapari spoke to dr george's gwela one of the lead authors of the report and a researcher at the university of wagadugu
7: this funding we have estimated that unsafe abortion is widespread in burkina we estimated that we have about 105,000 abortions abortion occurred in burkina faso in 2012 and the vast majority of these portfolio we were clandestine and performed under unsafe conditions.
11: What appears to be some of the major causes of this problem, according to the report, we found that the high level
7: of unintended pregnancy is a result of low level of contraceptive use. You see, 16% of married Burkina women use a modern contraceptive method, you see. In 2010, 30% of married women in Burkina reported that they did not want a child or another child. Soon or ever, they were not using any contraceptive method, you see?
11: But, Doctor, do these women know that the country has family planning programs?
7: Yes. We see that even some efforts are been made in the last uh, five years in Burkina in terms of family planning. We feel that family planning program need to be confirmed so as to allow you know, only women to more easily plan with the timing of and spacing of the pregnancies. We think that if family planning programs are more efficient, this will reduce internal pregnancies and that's the need for abortion.
11: Tell us, how high are the levels of risk for poor rural women compared to those living in urban areas?
7: The report found that a woman's social and economic status Mm -hmm. largely determines the type of abortion provider she will use. And thus, how safe procedure will also be. The level of risk was greatest for poor rural women. And we estimated that 70% of which go to traditional practitioners. With no medical training or a attempt to end the connective themselves using dangerous methods. The level is something like in rural countries we have 22,000 women performing the abortion.
11: And does Burkina Faso have restrictive laws that prohibit abortion like we're seeing in many parts of Africa?
7: Abortion in Burkina Faso is legally permitted only in the order to save the life and protect the health of women. In case of rape, incest, or fetal impairment. Yet, knowledge of the law is very low. Even health professionals do not know about this law. And what we recommend is that we need to increase the awareness of the Burkina Faso abortion law among women, communities, and even among health professionals to ensure. That Bukoba women who are eligible for a legal abortion can access state services.
11: What other recommendations are contained in this report? How best can the problem be solved?
7: The other recommendation is. To improve access to high-quality abortion services, especially in rural areas, is very critical in order to reduce maternal illness and death in Burkina Faso because we saw that the poor women, they do not have means to have access to medical care after the abortion. You see, abortion in rural area results to complications, and most of them do not receive any medical care.
1: That was Dr. Georges Gwela, a researcher at the University of Ouagadougou in Burkina Faso, talking to Elizabeth Mapari. It's 8.36 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. If you have any comments or questions about our show, you're welcome to send us an email to info@channelafrica.org or get a hold of us at our Twitter handle, which is at channelafrica1. The US-based nonprofit organization Clitorade has announced that the world's first repair hospital for victims of female genital mutilation or FGM, located in Burkina Faso in West Africa, will open on the 7th of March. This follows the recent commemoration of the 11th International Day of Zero Tolerance to FGM a practice that is globally recognized as a violation of human rights. Hundreds of women are already on clitoride's waiting list to have the surgery, which will be free for any woman who want it. Jane Matebula reports. Despite a century of efforts to put an end to genital
11: mutilation, commonly referred to as FGM, millions of girls and women around the world are still threatened by this harmful practice. According to the United Nations Population Fund, UNFPA, in 29 countries in Africa and the Middle East where the practice is commonly concentrated, more than 125 million girls have been cut. UNFPA's Dr. Akiniele Dairo says people really should understand that this practice has no benefits at all
4: female genital mutilation. Basically, that is situations where girls' genitalia, which is their vagina or the reproductive tract, is mutilated or caught, maybe because of tradition, because of culture, because what people have uh, just met in the practice. And the reason why people practice it in those communities has to do with their belief. In some places, they believe that it affects the fertility. In some places, they believe that it will control the sexual or preventing women from being promoted. That's the mistake there. This should not be done because it has no benefit. And I want to repeat that female genital mutilation has no benefit both for the women, both for the community and also for the husbands.
11: The United Nations Children's Fund, UNICEF, is also concerned about the adverse effects of FGM, especially to young girls. A representative of the child agency, Andrew Brooks, explains.
7: It happens at different ages to girls, but often very young, and starts a cycle of medical problems that immediately can affect urinating and as the girl gets older, of course, sexual practices and child rearing after that. So it it can really have a detrimental effect in in many different ways medically, but it's also a a question of gender and and disempowering uh, women and girls from a very young age. So unfortunately, there are many kind of social consequences as well as physical consequences for girls and women
11: but why do some communities still engage in this practice despite its adverse effects
7: there's a very strong sense of social obligation that goes with it it's something that's considered despite all the evidence of the harm that it does It's something that is practiced because it provides social acceptance within communities. So even when people disapprove of it, there's this social pressure to have your daughter cut. There's a lack of communication and openness on the subject.
11: The soon-to-be-opened hospital in Burkina Faso will give victims of FGM an opportunity to have the effects of the practice surgically reversed free of charge. Medical doctor and director of the new clinic, Dr. C. Benoit. We want
7: to to stop this practice by opening the hospital in West Africa, precisely in Burkina Faso, in the town of Ugojilasu. This clinic is built in a town where there are a lot of people who suffer from this, this mutilation. And it's built from money collected through all over the world, from all people who are volunteers, who want to help. To make all women get the pleasure because the violations
2: cut the pleasure of the women
11: dr benoit however acknowledges that there might be challenges to reach victims of fgm as it is a practice conducted in secrecy
7: i understand that it will be difficult to reach some people who do it in secret but we know that in Burkina, there is a law who punish people who do it. And there is a campaign to to call people, to denounce those who do it. And we hope that if we contribute by restoring people, those people who are doing it, they will hear it and know that even if they do it, it will be repaired later.
11: Meanwhile, a campaign led by a 17-year-old girl in the UK which calls for a new way to combat FGM has gathered more than 150,000 signatures since it was launched about two weeks ago. Backed by various activists, Farmer Mohammed, the face of the campaign, calls on the UK's Education Secretary Michael Goff to write to all head teachers in the country asking them to inform teachers and parents about FGM before the next summer holidays. This is a bid to protect girls from being mutilated during the cutting season. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Jane Matebula in Johannesburg.
1: After 20 years of anarchy in Somalia, at last the capital Mogadishu has the first fire brigade comprising 60 firefighters, thanks to neighboring Kenya, for training 20 of them. The firefighters are now preparing to undergo further training at a yet-to-be-named country in responding to sea and airport emergency calls. Our East Africa correspondent, James Shimanyula, reports. The
0: 20 Somali firefighters are now back home from Kenya, where they spent nearly four weeks undergoing extensive training at Kenyatta International Airport, east of the capital, Nairobi. The training was a test of endurance and quick understanding with a trainee pitting his wits against the other featuring prominently during the training were drills, a combination of warm-up and jogging, wearing protective gear each of the trainees carry the hose pipe running here and there with it, checking its kinks to ensure that it is not twisted as the water gushed out or passed through the nozzle in spray. <laughs> the Somali fighters were trained under the watchful eyes of Kenya Airports Authority fire and rescue instructor Francis Indelewa. He describes the training as very modern.
4: Airport firefighting is a bit advanced. It's more technical because you have to deal with the, an aircraft. With passengers on board and there's a lot of fuel and it is moving so when it touches down then you expect a lot of uh, problems and the fire is abrupt builds up very fast people can inhale the toxic gases from within or even hot air
0: the trainers would not have described the training as complete without putting the trainees through the strenuous process of fighting real fire that was deliberately started at a secluded site with all the aircraft in sight.
11: Practice, practice. Hey, hey.
0: As the fire burned and the smoke billowed, Somali fighters now I identified officially as a rescue team. Say, well, yeah.
1: That report by James Shimanyula. It's eight forty five Central African time and Tabisolohoku is up next with our economics news.
12: The Commission for Conciliation, Mediation and Arbitration in South Africa will hold talks with the trade union AMCU today in an effort to resolve a wage strike on the Platinum Belt. The mediator held separate talks with three Platinum producers, Lonmin, Amplats and Implats last Thursday. This comes as Amplats has approached the North Gauteng High Court in the capital, of Pretoria, to sue AMCU for damages incurred during the strike. Rulani Baloyi reports.
11: The strike, which is in its fourth week, is costing the economy close to 400 million rand a day, hitting over 40% of the global output of platinum. Mining giant Anglo-American says the lawsuit against AMCO was prompted by the union's failure to control its members from intimidation, violent behavior and acts of criminality. Amplatz is suing Amcu for 591 million rand for damages and losses incurred over the past three-week work stoppage. The union and the employers remain far apart, with platinum producers offering increases of up to nine percent, and the union insisting on what it calls a decent living wage for its members.
12: There could be hundreds of illegal miners still trapped in an abandoned mine shaft in Benoni, east of Johannesburg, where 11 miners were brought to surface yesterday. Tabiso Ramukejani, who alerted the police about the trapped miners, says his brother and cousin are among those still trapped underground.
4: Yes, they are still underground. When I arrived, I asked them, how many are you? They said they are about 300. Sometimes some of them can stay up to two weeks underground. They go down with food and cooking utensils and come back up when they are satisfied with the amount of gold they mined.
12: The Zimbabwean government says it has shortlisted two companies for the establishment of a platinum refinery in the country. According to a report by local news agency Financial Express, the two companies were shortlisted out of nine submissions made by players in the platinum industry. Mines and Mining Development Minister Walter Chitakwa says government will in the next few days announce the win in bidder. says the government considered a number of fa- factors in assessing the proposals. Kenya's chief prosecutor has ordered an anti-graft agency to charge the central bank governor, Professor Ndungu over abuse of office, a move that would force him to step aside at a time of turbulence in emerging markets. Analysts say such a step would create uncertainty in East Africa's biggest economy at a time when many emerging markets are being buffeted by the U.S. plan to reduce stimulus spending, although Kenya and its currency have so far felt little impact the zambian chartered institute of logistics and transport has started a course in defensive driving to prevent accidents in spite of incorrect actions by other road users adverse effect of road conditions or weather speaking at the ongoing zambia procurement supply chain and logistics summit 2014 held in lusaka cilt president milton sakala says his institute has designed a course in defensive driving directed to all fleet owners and public service operators the course is aimed at reducing road accidents as it will enhance road safety the u.s dollar trades at 1083 south african rands at 883 wazwanapoulos and at 567 zambian guachas it's also trading at 0.59 to the british pound and at 0.73 to the euro Gold trades at $1,320, platinum $1,424 an ounce, brand crude 108, 44 cents a barrel. Economics update.
1: Thank you, Tabiso Tami Kluza, up next with the sports update.
4: A quick look in your sports. Nigeria's kanopila striker Kabiru Umar has blamed mother luck for his side's ouster from the 2014 CAF Champions League. The Nigerian champions were booted out of the annual African Elite Club competition by DR Congo's AS Vita Club on a 3-4 aggregate scoreline despite winning 2-1 in the return fixture on Saturday at the Sunny Abacha Stadium in Kanu. Meanwhile, South Africa's Kaiser Chiefs advanced to the next stage of the CAF Champions League following a one-all draw with Black Africa in Venduk on Saturday. Zimbabwe striker Kinston Gata converted a Siawagakosi cross early for Amakosi, who progressed 4-1 on aggregate, while winger Willie Stephanas equalised with a low strike before the stoppage time. And our back-home poor performance by the South African national soccer team has forced Safa to focus its energy and resources to youth development the South African motherboard is spearheading soccer academies that will unearth youth talent countrywide. Deben will be the first to establish such an academy, with many youngsters currently being put through their paces at the Umlazi Kingsoliti Stadium in preparation for the Under-19 international tournament. The world showpiece will take place between July and August this year. An international renowned scout, Paul Cardoso, roped in by SAFA, is leading the technical team and he says if the abundance of talent in the country is efficiently used national soccer teams will go far
12: you have a lot of talent in south africa what um i felt since uh, 2008 when i came back first time uh, was you have um you don't have a pipeline um or is is not working properly like you have in other sports have a lot of talent so what we need to do is first of all scouting them Select the best potential players and, also, and not the best performing players in South Africa and work with them during 10-12 years' time. What we believe is in 2022, 50% of Bafana Bafana will be produced by this academy, this, this province.
4: Meanwhile, SAFA president Denir Dan says that the Under-19 project, as well as other junior leagues, are part of SAFA's vision for 2020 that are expected to produce future Bafana Bafana stars.
3: For a key issue of what is it that we do to create opportunities for the youth Uh, and you know that if you ask any youngster what is it that you want to do he will tell you I want to be a professional football player and this is the first step uh, because uh, it is a worthwhile career it's a rewarding career and we have seen how being a international football star can change the life not just of the individual player but of the entire family.
4: And now in hockey, a one-nil half lead turned into a four-nil victory for the South African women's hockey team in the third test against Scotland at the Tsuana University of Technology in Pretoria yesterday. South Africa has now clinched the five test series following their comprehensive five three and four three victories in the opening two matches. The Protists will fly to Buenos Aires on Wednesday night for a five-test series against World number 2 Argentina. The Protists are working hard ahead of the Champions Challenge and the Commonwealth Tournament in Glasgow in Scotland. And now in golf, South Africa's Thomas Aiken has won the Africa Open on the first hole of the playoff with England's Oliver Fisher at the East London Golf Club yesterday. Aiken is talking about the fact that he has won twice overseas, but this is his first major victory on home soil. Here is ecstatic Thomas Aiken.
6: I'd say it's the sweetest because it was in South Africa. Um, I've been wanting to win one for the South African fans for a while now. I've come close so many times, and it's just so nice to finally get one under the belt
2: here.
4: And finally, new Duzike new race champion Sponelo Zondi was delighted to have ended his long wait for the title after capturing the 2014 crown with Andy Biggett in Devon at the weekend. The pre-race favourites won in emphatic fashion after another commanding display during three stages between Inanda Dam and Blue Lagoon. The pair were the firm favourites after maintaining a nine-minute lead going into the final leg. Sondi says he is very much happy about the win.
5: So for us to win three days is very, very amazing because we really, really trained hard to win this race. Sir.
4: And that's the end of our sport. Stay tuned to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance and we're broadcasting live from our Johannesburg studios in Auckland Park in the Republic of South Africa. I'm Tami and back to Lulu Gabo.
0: Africa rise and shine Africa Zorba Africa Amka Na Unai
1: Recapping our top stories on Africa rise and shine at this hour. UNICEF expresses concern over violence against children in Central African Republic. And second round of Syrian peace talks end in deadlock. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Pumuto Ramagaza, technical producer Mario Edwards, and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info.channelafrica.co.za. Follow us on Twitter at our Twitter handle at channelafrica1 or send us an SMS to plus 2782. 3325905. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-metre band to southern Africa is Grammy Award-winning South African group Lady Smith's Black with Homeless.
5: Ma wen and we ba
7: my we ba Don't lie to you.